We turn now to the theme of emigration and a research project which goes behind the traditional emigrant success stories to tell tales of women that history tends to forget. Since 2015, Dr Elaine Farrell of Queen's University Belfast and Dr Leanne McCormick of Ulster University have been researching the stories of women who emigrated from Ireland to the United States and to Canada. They focused on women who were considered criminal or deviant, who left from the 1830s to the end of the First World War, and they've uncovered a real treasure trove of fascinating human stories and hidden social history. Their research culminated in a five-part podcast series called Bad Bridget, which was released late last year. To talk about it, Elaine and Leanne join me now. You're both very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much, Miles, and thanks for having us. Elaine, tell us about the aim of the the project and what kind of figures you found on Irish women who found themselves in trouble with the law and in prison. Yeah, so our aim for the project was to look at the lived realities for Irish women who migrated to the US and to Canada across the 19th and early 20th century. And we wanted to look in particular at those women who found themselves in courts or who ended up in prison or in other um, institutions that they were accused of some kind of deviant or criminal behaviour. We'd have loved to look, at, I suppose, at hundreds of cities in North America, but, you know, time and money uh, constraints, we focused on three. So we focused on New York, Boston and Toronto. We had both independently done kind of scoping trips in New York and Boston. And then we added Toronto because quite a large number of Irish Protestant migrants went to Toronto. And I suppose, I mean, I'm sure Leanne would agree with me, but we were pretty shocked at the scale of, you know, this kind of Irish female criminality. Um, There were quite a lot of women ending up in prison, you know, far more, um, I think, than we anticipated um, when we left uh, to do the research. You know, we're ending up in the 1860s in New York, you know, just to give you some examples. We have women representing um, up to 86% of the the prison population in New York. So that means that Irish women in prison are the largest group. They outnumber every other population combined. Um, And what we also found quite unusual is that Irish women are ending up in prison, you know, in in larger numbers than Irish men in some years, um, which would be quite unusual, you know, thinking about criminality where women tend to be far fewer in the criminal records. Leanne, I suppose we should also establish that Irish women emigrated to the USA in the 19th century in similar numbers to Irish men, and both were leaving, obviously, poverty-stricken conditions in Ireland itself. There are a, sort of a number of things that are quite unusual and unique about Irish female migration in, in the 19th century, and one of those is the, the large numbers of women who are going, but also that so many Irish women travel on their own, which was very different in the European context of, of immigration, where most women travelled as part of a family group or as wives and, and mothers, really. So you're seeing often very young, we see 11, 12 and 13-year-old girls travelling on their own, sometimes with some maybe a a contact to go and see, sometimes not, and travelling on their own in these large numbers. And of course, economics and poverty are often the big drivers behind this emigration, and it is the possibility of making a new life. And for a number of these women, again, the pressure is about sending money home, that the expectation is that families may have saved for a long time to help 
a girl in the family to emigrate and that she'll be able to send money back home and hopefully that'll maybe help somebody else um, migrate as well. So the importance of chain migration and the importance as well of sending money back home and supporting families back in Ireland. And I suppose it was quite difficult sometimes to get out from the poverty. You know, when we're thinking about the Irish women who are leaving Ireland, you know, like we need to keep the famine in mind there. You know, the kind of the sheer poverty. And we have one woman, Margaret Foley, and she migrated at the height of the famine in 1847. She migrated to the US. She ended up having 10 children five of whom died. Her husband died when she was in her 50s. And, and she says that since her, her migration from Ireland, she basically earned her living any way that she could. So we can really get that kind of sense of the difficulty of shaking off that poverty. And where were they in general finding work? Were they domestic servants? Were they working in factories? Where were they getting jobs? Yeah, we, we do see a real mix of jobs. When they are going to a number of the big cities, domestic service really is one of the main employers. We do see in our stories of Bad Bridgets, though, a lot of those situations where women end up in kind of difficulties in employment. And for a lot of very young women, they can be taken advantage of in those situations as well as domestic servants. Often in the American literature at the time, and you see in, in various magazines, the Irish servant is often sort of mocked and the, the biddy, as she becomes known, becomes a sort of figure of fun too. She's often portrayed as this sort of muscly, uh, with sort of woman with simian features, uh, you know, a very rough compared to this sort of wasp American uh, woman who's very genteel and is sort of often, you know, held to ransom by this very kind of rough Bridget type figure as well. Um, but we see women working in areas where there are factories, they're working in a whole range of industries. For some women who are, for example, single mothers, getting jobs and keeping a job in domestic service, for example, would be very difficult. Um, so they are taking up any kind of work where they can. And Elaine, are they going with any sense of adventure? Are they buying into the American dream or are they going under no illusions, whatever, and just expecting that there will be literally more chance of surviving in America than there would be if they stayed in Ireland? Is it as basic as that? I'm sure, Miles, like there is that kind of sense of adventure. I suppose emigration was so commonplace as well that it nearly was like a coming of age, you know, especially for those who might have migrated as teenagers or in their early 20s. And I suppose especially if, you know, they're heading over to friends or they're heading over to siblings that they mightn't have seen for a while. There's also that kind of sensory shock, you know, that they're very often leaving rural Ireland um, and they're arriving in these urban cities, you know, New York and Boston. And, and I suppose there's the kind of excitement and opportunities that that would bring as well. You know, we can see it in the records, this kind of the impact of this lack of surveillance, you know, that kind of lack of parental surveillance as well. You know, there's no neighbours kind of with the, the twitching curtains and reporting back to parents about behaviour. So there has to be that kind of sense of freedom when the women are, are heading over. I'm sure that many of them went with that idea that they were going to make something of themselves, you know, that they were going to go earn money, send the money back to Ireland and perhaps then move home themselves with their money made. But for some, you know, I suppose that's, that's kind of one of the key reasons why we want to do this project. You know, we want to show that that it wasn't always that success story, that there was a kind of a complexity to the Irish migration story. Leanne, you cover a whole range of crimes up to and including murder, but many seem to be related to alcohol and you devote an episode of the podcast to the demon drink. Um, yeah, and I think this was something that we were quite shocked by. 
we did think that alcohol would feature quite heavily in a lot of these crimes. And I suppose there is that very strong association between the Irish and alcohol and drinking abroad. But we were um, really quite struck by the sheer numbers. Um, in most of our cities, generally through the period, we're looking at over 50% of crimes um, that women were being prosecuted for having some alcohol-related issue. And actually, it's probably more than that, you know, if we were looking at the kind of the fine details of, of crime. So you you have women being arrested for being drunk, for being drunk and disorderly, but a whole range of other public order crimes often had alcohol involved. And a lot of the assault charges and things, you've got people who end up fighting or or on assault charges where, where alcohol um, is involved in this as well. And I suppose there are probably, you know, a number of reasons behind why the numbers of Irish women involved with alcohol were so high. Um, one being really that alcohol was much cheaper in our North American cities than it was at home. So it was it was much more easy to access, to get hold of. And we see women often coming into, for example, halfway houses after having spent some time in, in prison and um, discussing the reasons why they, they drank. And they're, they're very often saying things, you know, that it's about disappointment or despair or or loss and that alcohol was something that they turned to in, in those times and there, there has been work written that, that does talk about why it's often really discussing men drinking and, and going to the the bars and things for for male company but also about missing home and we see very similar things for women we've got a couple of examples where women will say I didn't drink until I met so-and-so from home and then then we went drinking and I, I spent time with her and it you know it's sort of while it is maybe blaming somebody else but at the same time I think there's probably a lot of truth in those stories where where people did feel alone and, and came together in those situations as well so it does play a huge part in a lot of our crimes. And Leanne I think also one of the things that comes across is that at least some of the women emigrated to America because they were pregnant and you've got an episode a podcast on the subject of unmarried mothers and there are a number of heartbreaking stories just just focus on one of them tell us the story of Rosie Quinn if you would yeah I mean Rosie Quinn's story is a one of our really interesting stories one of the stories which you know quite a bit about because of the fact that her her sentence actually she was pardoned um, in the end for sentence as well and um, Rosie migrated when she was about 16 in, in 1900 and she goes to work in a hotel in New York a big hotel um the Fifth Avenue uh, hotel which was a sort of luxury hotel she is arrested at her work in December 1902 for suspected of having murdered her uh, three-day-old daughter and when Rosie tells her story um, it's one that is a common one um, in terms of lots of women at the time where she has found herself uh, pregnant, she's not married. She said that she went to the lying in hospital, she gave birth, and then she tried to find an institution to take her baby. She knocked on doors to see if anybody would help her. She couldn't get any help. And she says she was sort of in despair and she went to Central Park. She was standing beside the lake and in her words, the baby slipped from her hands. Now, she then returned to work in the hotel and there were various ways in which they were able to sort of identify that the, the link the baby back to her and she was arrested there and found guilty of, of second degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. But a lot of the people in the hotel, the staff that she worked with, basically seemed to have got a campaign together. They were it attracted a lot of attention in the press. 
a lot was made of the fact that she was this seen as this sort of innocent Irish girl who had been wronged. She'd been taken advantage of. She'd by sort of this man, and we're in the sort of discussions of who the father of the baby might be. And there's a there's a general furlong who's staying, who's a long term resident of the hotel, a, a millionaire, and he he's persuaded by the staff to become involved in sort of campaigning essentially for her release. And all sorts of people write in and, um, you know, saying that their heart is broken about the story that of what has happened to her. And they, they, you know, there's basically a lot of sympathy generated for her. And after serving about a year and a half, her, her sentence was she was pardoned. And as, as far as we're aware, she seems to have come back to New York, but then probably gone west and, and moved on somewhere else and started anew. And again, very unlikely, really, I suppose, that she told of what had happened to her in, in New York. And Elaine, there's also a story about a woman called Ellen from Galway. That's a story that that happens in Boston. I think she she becomes pregnant. Yeah. So, you know, like you said, Miles, we have these women who are are leaving Ireland sometimes when they're pregnant. Um, You know, there is that sense of of stigma in Ireland, you know, giving birth to a child outside marriage could damage somebody's reputation, but also damage the reputation of their family. So we can see this sometimes then in the US when we have women who become pregnant. And Ellen, as you say, you know, she's from Galway um, and she finds herself in this situation where she becomes pregnant and gives birth to a child and, and she wants to return home to Ireland. And she initially buys a passage ticket for herself and her son to go home. But then she later changes her mind and instead she travels alone and her baby is put up for adoption. And she says that she really thinks it would break her mother's heart if she returned home from the US um, with a child born outside marriage. So again, we can see the real kind of impact on women's lives, on, on the children's lives. You know, this kind of stigma really shaped her response in that case. Leanne, there were also moral reform institutions, so-called. Were these moral reform institutions trying to actually help Irish women or were they more worried about the, the souls and the afterlife of, of, of Irish women? I suppose it's a mix of both, really. Um, and in, in keeping with the sort of type of rescue and reform institutions that are established across Britain and Ireland and, and other parts of the world at, at this time, fueled by concerns about what's happening often in growing cities, about prostitution, about the moral behaviour of women. And of course, these are very gendered. There are no equivalent institutions for men. Men are not in need of being reformed from their behaviour. So it's very much about the women in these situations. And there's a sort of an idea of, of if you can bring these women in, you can both see of their souls and that to be properly reformed they need to uh, repent from their sins and then they can be trained up ideally to be domestic servants returned sort of in about 18 months to two years back out into the world they'll get jobs and they'll be good sort of moral upstanding citizens so these institutions sort of play a, a variety of roles in that the ideal was to return you know women reformed back into society and of course it's it's they're run often by middle and upper class women who are in need of servants as well. So they, they do provide a kind of employment role in this too. But again, they are fueled by religious values. And you have got Catholic religious orders, such as the, the Good Shepherd Sisters, um, who would have been involved in, in Magdalene Laundries in, in Ireland, also would have, have run sort of similar institutions. Um, the institution, the Good Shepherd Sisters in New York, were very much involved in sort of running kind of a kind of alternative to prison and, and a kind of halfway house as well for women when they would leave prison as well. So you see all denominations becoming involved in this 
uh, work as well. But I suppose it's also we need to kind of keep in mind that not all women kind of felt shame at giving birth outside marriage. So they didn't all kind of conform um, to that. We have one unmarried Irish woman, Mary McPatter, um, and she's seeking kind of help because she's poor um, in New York. And she says that she thinks there's no harm about her if she's not married. But the officials, you know, she's not playing that role of the kind of repentant woman and um, sorry for what she has done and kind of feeling ashamed of what she has done. And officials describe her as a bold, impertinent girl. So she's really different than, than some of those kind of unmarried mothers that kind of play up that or attract so much sympathy because she's so defiant and she won't take it. She doesn't acknowledge her shame at all. Elaine, you talked about, or you and Leanna both actually talked about emigrants' remittances, about these women were expected to send money back home, and they did in large amounts. But in some cases, the families would not necessarily have known where the money was coming from. And what I'm leading up to is a, a podcast that you've got on sex workers. And one of the, I think, your favourite stories is of, of Maud Merrill, Tell us about Maud Merrill and the perspective that she gives us on this particular subject. Um, so Maud Merrill is one of my favourite cases. Sometimes I, I kind of feel like it's depending on what day you ask, <laughs> I'll have a, have a different favourite. But, but she's a sex worker in New York in the 1870s and, and she's doing very well for herself. We have, you know, quite a lot of women who are, are working in the sex industry who are, are quite poor, sometimes homeless um, as well. But that's not Maud Merrill's story. You know, she's living in kind of lavish circumstances. She's living in this kind of luxuriously furnished house. Um, she has original art on the walls. She attends balls and dances kind of as an escort. Um, and she migrated to the US to join her sister, Charlotte, who had gone before her. And Charlotte is working as a domestic servant and is really upset at Maud working in the sex industry. And, and she tries to persuade her to leave. And Maud says, you know, OK, fine, you know, I will, but not now, you know, after Christmas, which is a few weeks away. And I suppose I like this case because we get a bit of an insight here into Maud Merrill's agency, you know, that that she's making that deliberate decision to remain in the sex industry because she needs to earn um, money. So it's kind of that idea of a deliberate choice. And, and we don't often get a kind of sense of why women are involved in the things that they are involved in. She did have some negative experiences as a domestic servant. So maybe that's also why she didn't want to kind of fall back onto domestic service as an occupation. And you know, this the story has a sad ending, which which we talk about in the podcast, but we do get the insight into her life precisely and um, because of this sad ending. And um, so we get the details of what her bedroom looked like, about what she had been doing in the days leading up um, to her death. And she's actually killed by her uncle. Now, he's the very same man who has actually paid for her to migrate from Ireland to the US a few years earlier. And it was precisely because of her work in the sex industry that he killed her. So he said, you know, that she was bringing shame on the family through her sex work. And so he uh, murdered her. Now, I know both of you have spent a lot of time in archives in you know places like New York, Boston, Toronto and the like, and that you have dug these stories out, as it were. But um, to finish off, I mean, I say, as, I, as I point out, the podcasts in terms of crimes go all the way up to the level of, of murder. And I would imagine that you didn't have to do an awful lot of digging in the case of Lizzie Halliday. Elaine, maybe you'd tell us about the, 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 the celebrated case, really, of, of Lizzie Halliday. You're right, Miles. Uh, she's one of our more notorious 
um, bad Bridget. She has her, her own Wikipedia page um, and everything. Um, so the New York Times described Lizzie as the worst woman on earth. Um, so she has quite the reputation um, of when she was alive. Um, she was the first woman in the US to be sentenced to death by the electric chair. Um, and that was in 1894. So she migrated, we think she migrated from County Antrim um, when she was a baby. Um, she married a few times. She had a bit of a checkered history in, in that she was accused of some crimes. She was convicted um, of arson. And then it all kind of came to a head in 1893 when she, when her neighbours um, kind of felt that her husband ha hadn't been seen um, in a while. So so he was quite elderly um, and Lizzie said he was away, but the neighbours were, I suppose, a little bit um, suspicious. So when Lizzie was out of the house, um, the neighbours went in search of Paul Halliday and they, they didn't actually find Paul. Instead, they found the bodies of a mother and daughter, Margaret and Sarah McQuillan, um, in the barn. And later, the body of Paul Halliday was found under the floorboards um, in the kitchen. So Lizzie is is arrested um, and brought to trial for the murder um, of the three individuals. Now, the trial attracted quite a lot of attention, as you can imagine, you know, thinking about the, the kind of murders um, that had been um, committed. And um, there were loads of rumours about Lizzie Halliday. You know, the, the journalists kind of had all these different stories about about what she had done in the past, what she might have done in the past. Even on one stage, at one stage, it was said that um, perhaps she had been involved in the Whitechapel murders. So perhaps she had, she was Jack the Ripper, um, which was really kind of taken the the whole thing um, out of context. But but shows us how how much attention her trial had attracted. Um, so she was found guilty of murder, and like I said, she was sentenced to death by electrocution. But in the end, she was saved. Um, because she was considered to be, as it would have been called, insane at the time, and instead she went to an asylum. But she continued to be quite violent, actually, um, in the asylum. And in 1906, she was back in the, the news again because she was uh, accused um, of the murder of a, an attendant, Nellie Wicks, um, at the asylum. So so Nellie had said that, that she was going to leave the asylum, that, you know, she was was changing jobs. And Lizzie Halliday didn't take this uh, very well. Um, and so she stabbed her more than 200 times. Um, so it is an unusual case, you know, in terms of the, the kind of the level of violence, the kind of um, serial killing. Um, and in many ways, she's not um, the, the kind of typical bad Bridget. But it does show us how how some of the Irish migrants really some of the, the cases really attracted quite a lot of attention. And it's a fascinating project. You've done great research. As I say, you have dug out some stories that we would otherwise, there's no way we would ever have heard of these stories, Lizzie Halliday being a, an, an obvious exception. I should also point out that you are ably abetted in this project by uh, no less a person than Sister Michael herself from from Derry <laughs> Girls, uh, Siobhan McSweeney. Yeah, um, she's amazing. Uh, but uh, anyway, so congratulations. A fantastic uh, project. The podcasts are available. You can listen to them on whatever your podcast medium happens to be. Just search for Bad Bridget wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, Dr. Elaine Farrell and Dr. Leanne McCormick, many thanks to you both for joining us on The History Show this evening. Thank you so thanks much, Miles. Much.